Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season 3 has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. Thank you so much for joining us, and here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today we have Peter Wolkowski with us. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Jill. It's great to well, talk with you. It is truly morning there because it's morning where I'm at, but it's 1 a.m. where you're at. That's right, and it's a little bit cold, so I'm all rugged up. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you for staying up for us. You are in New South Wales, Australia? That's right, yeah. yeah. How long have you lived there? I've lived here for pretty much all of my 65 years. Wow. Wow. Let me tell you a little bit about Peter. Peter is an author, a life coach, blogger, and spoken word poet. He's also a member of the Outback Writers Group. Peter and his wife, Penelope, have been married for 38 years and raised seven children. He says that his six years as a nightclub bouncer made him reflect deeply on the dilemma of lovely young people wanting to really live but wrecking themselves at the same time. He often thinks of them when he writes. His poems flow around the themes of family, friends, romance, and faith, boys, community, rage, and trauma, and the surprise of grace, healing, and hope that's often found in the places we dread the most. Peter occasionally performs spoken word in cafes and pubs. So when did you start writing? I didn't really start writing seriously until about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been working as a veterinary surgeon, actually. Okay. And um, one morning, it was just early. We had about probably four or five kids by then, and I just wrote a poem. And um, I thought, actually, I wonder where that came from. So that inspired me to start writing. And, yeah, I've been writing things ever since. Interesting. Interesting. You know, for so many people, writing is a creative outlet, but something that they aspire to and kind of, you know, work towards, not just arrive someday. So to have that gift arrive for you is is pretty incredible. Yeah, it was. Uh, interestingly, when I was in high school, I really loved literature. And um, but at the same time, back in those days, I looked at a lot of the guys who were into art and music and literature. And the ones that did really well were kind of ODing and uh, just wrecking themselves. Mm. So I had this feeling, maybe I should do something more practical. So I became a vet surgeon. (laughs) Well, that is more practical, but, you know. (laughs) So um, your kids are all grown now? Hello again, Jill. Can you hear me? Hello. Okay, I'm here. Yep. Okay. I don't think it recorded that first part. Okay. So do you mind if we start over? 
No, that's all right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, it just kind of blanked out on me and then quit. So good out into it. All right. Yes. All right. Let's start over. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today we have Peter Volkovsky with us all the way from New South Wales, Australia. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Jill. It is morning for me, but it is early morning for you. It is 1 a.m., so thank you for staying awake to record this for us. I really appreciate it. No, that's right. It's an honor to be here with you. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful to have you. Let me tell you a little bit about Peter. Peter is an author, life coach, blogger, and spoken word poet. He's also a member of the Outback Writers Group. Peter and his wife, Penelope, have been married for 38 years and raised seven children. He says that his six years as a nightclub bouncer made him reflect deeply on the dilemma of lovely young people wanting to really live, but wrecking themselves at the same time. He often thinks of them when he writes. His poems flow around the theme of family and friends, romance and faith, boys, community, rage and trauma, and the surprise of grace, healing, and hope that's often found in the places we dread the most. Peter occasionally performs spoken word in cafe and pubs. So when did you start writing? Uh, Around about 30 years ago. We had a number of children at the time, and I'd been working as a veterinary surgeon for quite a while. And I got up one early foggy morning. No one else was up. And I found myself writing a poem. And ever since then, I just have kept writing things, publishing books or writing poetry or performing poetry. That's amazing. Did you study literature and and uh, poetry before? I did when I was in high school. I really loved it. But I was pretty disappointed with the art world as a young guy, trying to work out what I was going to do with my life. And um, so I decided to do something more practical. <laughs> Be a surgeon. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> that makes sense. So how long have you lived in New South Wales? 65 years. Yeah. Okay. All my life. All your whole life. Okay. And your kids, are they all grown now? Yeah. The last one left home a couple of years ago. She's trained to be a nurse. So yeah, the others are all out there at large in the world. Wow. Isn't that amazing to watch kids find their um, passion and find their direction and just kind of watch them become who they were meant to be? Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Each one of them, I say to people that my children sometimes almost put me in jail and other times they've kept me out of jail. So, yeah, but um, my wife is a very talented um musician and singer she's not professional but i think her genes have gotten into them as well so we have writers and storytellers and musicians but they all understand you're not going to really make much money out of that so (laughs) there is one of them who is making money out of it (laughs) well that's great that's great so tell me a little bit about um about growing up in new south wales what was your what was your growing up years like uh, we grew up on a sheep and cattle station way out in the outback. And so for us boys, the mail, the the uh, primary school would arrive in the mail with the mailman. When we got into high school, my dad sent us to a boarding school. So we went off down to a place called Bathurst and we'd get home in the holidays and he'd have all the work for us and then we'd go back to school again. At the same time, though, my mum had contracted motor neurone disease. So, yeah, she was on the way out 
and she had left this world by the time I was in year seven. So my mum and dad, watching them dealing with that, actually really inspired me, but it also made me very angry as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what was it like being in a boarding school, being away from, being away from home? Did you like it? Uh, yeah, in a way it was a relief not having to be at home. Um, yeah, as a young boy, even though I really loved my mom, uh, because mom was at home, we would help dad to feed her and look after her and she would talk to us when she could and all that kind of stuff. But it was a relief in a way to be at boarding school and be able to play sport and just throw myself into my studies and all that kind of thing. So yeah. There were, yeah, yeah. So what kind of a motor neuron d- disease did she have? Uh, it was upper motor neuron. So it was progressing up her system until eventually she couldn't breathe. Yeah, so she mm. was a quadriplegic. Was it, um, is that hereditary or is it something that you catch or I'm uninformed on that? Yeah, people are unsure about it. It seems like there is some hereditary side to it, but also it may be related to viral illnesses and that kind of thing. Yeah, they, uh, I remember as a young boy when I was around about um, six, before that she was really beautiful, happy, energetic, amazing woman, amazing mother. But then I can remember just that something had gone wrong. And so mom and dad were going to go to South Africa to find a faith healer. And, uh, and so uh, we were put into a uh, hostel while they were away. Yeah. And so, so the faith healer um, in South Africa, what was the results of that trip? Yeah, that was a hard one, Um, but the word came back that my mom had felt a presence of evil in this woman, and uh, as if she was being offered a bargain with the devil, and um, and so, yeah, she wouldn't have taken that on board lightly, but Mm -hmm. she just couldn't let this woman touch her, and so when she came back, um, I just remember seeing her with a walking frame. We didn't ask any questions. We just knew that it hadn't gone well. Mm. What was your earliest recollection of your faith? Um, well, it's really hard to pin it down, um, but tracing it all back, I can remember just as a very young boy having a lot of fun with my mom one day. We were just playing in the bedroom and feeling like the two of us were almost one creature. And there was something really beautiful and lovely in the whole world, everything. It just felt like it was just amazing. But as a, you know, two or three-year-old, I couldn't really translate that, obviously, into God as such. But Mm -hmm. by the time I was about um, eight years old, I can remember getting up really early in the morning to go out and watch the sunrise before everyone else was up and to pray for my mom. So somewhere in there, I picked something up off my mom and dad and I was praying for my mom to get better and I would watch her secretly during the day to see where the healing was going to start because I was sure that the healing was going to happen. Mm-hmm. What um, Did your family have a theology of healing because of your mother or was that just a part of your faith community? Um, well, we didn't really have a faith community as such where we were because we lived a long way from town 
occasionally people from a church would come out and visit. Uh, we didn't really have a kind of an established understanding about faith healing. We did talk to God about all sorts of different things. So um, if something went wrong, we would talk to God about it. Sometimes we'd read the Bible together and all of that. So it just kind of developed out of um, suffering, I guess. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So yeah. you were in grade seven when she passed away? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And how did that um, affect your faith and affect you as, as a young boy? Yeah, well, I can remember by the time I was in year seven, the feeling we'd heard that dad had moved her into a hospital. And, uh, and so we knew that um, the time was coming. And I was in class that day and I saw the minister the chaplain at our school walking towards my classroom. It was a hot day and he had his black gown on. And straight away I thought, yeah, I know what this is going to be. And so he took me to the office, the headmaster's office, and my brother was there and we both burst into tears. So we were very sad, but on the other hand, it was a relief. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I had this divided feeling about God because my mom had inspired me to, she'd convinced me that there's something really beautiful and amazing in the world and the universe and in us. Uh, and it's to do with Jesus and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, she'd kind of lit a candle and put it inside of my heart. But the other side of it was I felt like there was this dark, dark influence over all of us saying to us you know what in the end evil is going to win Mm. Uh, but i i wanted to fight that at the same time as feeling angry Mm -hmm. about everything yeah i think that's understandable as a as a young man with those conflicting emotions having having both those things um feel to be true right yeah yeah definitely um, and so uh, tell me a minute, you stayed in a youth hostel while your parents went to the faith healer. What was that about? Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't fully understand how come we ended up there. I have a feeling that my grandmother would have argued with her husband, her granddad, to have all of us at her place. But anyway, we were put in this youth hostel where all of the students there were about five or 10 years older than us. So there was myself and my two brothers. The youngest one was five. I was nearly six. Older brother was seven. And in there, we learned to fight. Um, we learned to smoke. They said, if you don't smoke, we're going to punch your head in kind of thing. And so we became kind of tough in that space of a couple of months or a few months. I can't remember exactly how long, something like that, when we were in there. And, um, but all sorts of things started to happen in there where we realized that the children were actually running the hostel, not really the adults. Mm-hmm. In my dormitory, I hardly ever saw an adult there. And uh, I can remember a game that this boy was playing with a rope and we were all sitting in a circle around the big tree and he had this rope with a noose on it. And he was calling out for challenges to come and put the noose around their neck. Mm. And a girl girl came out and put it around her neck and laughed and then walked back. And as a young boy, I thought, I'm out of here. And there was another time where we were at the toilets and there 
got the huge crowd of the kids there. They were all so big and I didn't know what was going on. And I pushed my way through and there was this girl, she was just uh, stripped naked and it was like, it was, I'd never seen anything like it. It was like an auction or something. Mm. So I felt punched in the face. So that kind of stuff was happening. And then um, years later, some of this started to come out. Some of the trauma that happened to me directly, uh, it's quite serious sexual abuse that happened there. Mm. Um. Did you just kind of compartmentalize that and stuff that in for a long time? Uh, yeah, I remembered some of the things, but what I didn't remember was what came out when I was turned about 50, actually, about 45 years later. And um, uh, we had a friend who was dying of cancer. And one day I was walking past through the kitchen and I heard my wife talking to someone about her, uh, his children and the mother uh, about them being farmed out to different houses to be looked after while he was in hospital. And almost as if I felt a click inside of me, and I said, they're all staying here and they can stay here forever. And then later that day, I was in my office and I just began to feel a pounding inside my chest as if I'd been playing a game of football or something. But I wasn't really breathing heavily. It was just pounding really hard. And I walked outside and tried to stop it, but it wouldn't go away. And then after a while, it settled down. And then after that, I started getting um, these, they were kind of like flashbacks from when I was about six, about stuff happening at the hostel. And um, I went into denial. I thought, you've heard too many stories, just making it up. Mm-hmm. So I decided I would, I would tell nobody about it and I would try to find... I would try to just roll the dice and find a counsellor somewhere that didn't know my family or anyone. I felt so filthy and ashamed. So that's kind of what got got those flashbacks started. You know, it's hard when you're, and this has been my experience um, in my 40s is when um, things have started to come out, but it's really hard because you do feel like, oh, I'm going crazy, or this is my overactive imagination, or I'm adopting stories that are co-opting stories that are other people's stories. It really is, um, it really shakes the ground and is disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah, very much. And um, and it was kind of like, um, uh, it was almost like the six-year-old boy in me was coming back to life. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified, and this six-year-old boy was giving me information because at first I thought, surely I would have gone and told someone about this. And then uh, I had this this scene where uh, there was this girl who was telling me she was my mother and she was going to protect me. And um, But somewhere in there she started using me. Um, Mm. And so... uh, I'm there saying to her, um, if you don't stop this, I'm going to tell everybody. And, and she said, they'll laugh at you. But as a, as a little boy, there's a part of me that was actually enjoying it as well. And so that added to the shame and the fear mm-hmm. and the hate. Mm-hmm. And so I then realized, I thought, because this girl, she seemed like she was so big. I thought, mm-hmm. of course, because I'm a six-year-old boy. And, uh, and so I realized why. I was intimidated into not saying a word to anybody because being laughed at is terrifying for a child that age. Right. 
you know, yeah. shame is um, shame is uh, a huge a huge player in our lives and can be so damaging. And it's it's carrying somebody else's guilt that isn't your own. And so, how do you um, how did you process that that shame and move through it to release it and put it back on where, whoever it was belonged to? Yeah, well, part of the problem there was that the network ran a lot deeper, and uh, eventually, I thought, thought if I don't do something, I could end up killing somebody or having to put in jail or. So one day I just prayed and I said, all right, God, you've got to bring someone to mind that I can trust because I don't know what to do. And, um, yeah, a friend came to mind and I respected her as a counsellor. I was kind of surprised that I hadn't thought of her because I was very aware of all the quack stories and all the crazy things that happened. And um, so... I decided I would get in touch with her husband. I went to the computer. I couldn't, my hands were shaking that violently that I could hardly even type the email. She called me back later and talked to me and she said, actually, I can't help you. Mm. And straight away I thought, there you go, it's a waste of time. But then she said, actually, I think I can find someone who can. So she got back to me later and said, what do you think about hypnotherapy? And uh, I'd heard all kinds of terrible stories about hypnotherapy or at least the hypnotists that go to the clubs and all the silly, stupid things that happen. Mm -hmm. So I didn't like that idea at all, but I said I'd think about it. And as soon as I put the phone down, I thought of an old story in the Old Testament where um, this Syrian general called Naaman had leprosy and his slave girl told him about a healer in Israel. And he went to find him Mm -hmm. and the healer said to him, look, just go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. The healer didn't even touch him. He he didn't even come out of his house to speak to him. And um, so I felt kind of trapped by that story because I knew what was going on because in that story, the general was so angry he refused to do it. Mm -hmm. But his servant begged him to humble himself and just wash in the muddy old Jordan River. So he did it and he was healed. So the, the thing there for me was I thought this is my pride. That's what this is about. Mm. Uh, but also the timing of it, I had that sense that maybe a God of love, the God of love that I believed in and trusted was trying to reassure me that this woman that I'd spoken to was a good friend could be trusted. So surely I could trust her with that. So I made a deal with God that I would see this guy, but I'd have two tests for him to pass. The first one was if he was creepy when I got to the door, I would just walk away. So, <laughs> so I thought that was a fair test. Uh-huh. And my, my second test was that, um, that if I got into his office, that he would be happy for me to ask for Jesus to sanctify the time and the place in the name of his blood. And so he passed both of those tests. Mm. And um, he, as soon as I sat down in the chair, actually, 
uh, I, I felt myself going back to that hostel. And he told me he wouldn't take me into unconscious hypnosis. He'd just take me to a low level of consciousness. So I was there and I was shaking and crying and all of that and going through the whole thing. But the worst part of it was that there was this door to the bathroom that even previously I'd avoided in my imagination, not my imagination, my recollection or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I was led there late at night by someone and I had to wait in the bathroom. And the the hypnotherapist just asked really good questions. He seemed to sense mm-hmm. where I was. So I was in there and he said to me, so what's happening now? And I said, the door is opening. And he said, what's coming through it? I said, it's an angry old man. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have to look him in the eye. And I just, I, I almost couldn't do it. I've jumped over cliffs on ropes and all sorts of things. But this is the most terrifying thing I had to do in my life. And I did actually look into this monster's eye. And at that moment, it was as if a huge thorn was pulled out of me. And it was like this really beautiful breeze came into the room. And I felt shattered, but I felt like something really amazing had happened. Mm. You know, um, those those memories that come back uh, are so um, visceral and so um, embodied, aren't they? That um, it's, yeah. it's quite shocking. Yeah, it is. It's pretty terrible. It was the other thing that's really shocked me about it all is that um, it was kind of like I was I was terrified of other people meeting this part of myself. Mm-hmm. This six year old, this beautiful six year old boy, and because of the filth and the shame associated with that. So, sometime before this actually happened. I'd been reading the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus. And at, while I was contemplating all of this, and I felt as if God's spirit was trying to say to me, you know, you have a tomb inside of you, a 45-year-old tomb, mm-hmm. and he's coming to raise that boy from the dead. Mm. And... Despite all of this, though, I was still terrified and found it extremely hard to talk to anybody about it because I felt so ashamed of that part of myself. But it has felt since that time that um, that a fresh new part of me has actually come to life and it's helped me to understand why a part of me... Um, it's probably part of my personality as well, but a part of me has um, always been really, really wary of um, people getting close to me. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. But yeah, the hypnotherapist said to me after the end of that session, he said, he said, you know, we've got a lot of help today. He said, this would normally take seven sessions. And uh, he said, uh, actually, I got a lot of help. 
And um, and then he said, I'm not going to charge you for this. And he said, you'll never need to come back. And I didn't believe wow. him about, about the coming back bit. I thought, no, nah. because my, my best option was I was probably going to have to come back and see him every month for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I waited a year and then I thought, actually, I really have been healed. And then it dawned on me that chest pains that I'd had for years, for about probably 15 years, had just disappeared. And I realized that um, I'd forgotten something where about six months before all this kind of blew up, I'd, um, I got frustrated with these chest pains because for years doctors had put monitors on me and everything and never found any reason for it. I'd asked a couple of friends of mine to anoint me with oil and pray for me. And that happened about six months before all this all blew up. So to me, it felt like when they did that, that kind of little doorway opened mm-hmm. that set things in motion for these other things. Yeah, yeah. So my impression of um, hypnotherapy is that it's uncovering the wounds and showing you what's there. Um but the healing process then um, takes longer. But for you, um, that wasn't the case. It was almost instantaneous healing. Yeah, it was. It was um, when it happened, I felt, I actually felt embarrassed because I thought, how come I got the gold card? Yeah. Because I have friends who didn't get this one. And um, it was just, it was so amazing and it felt like it just started a wave of beautiful things, like a big ripple that is still going in my life, spreading out further and further. And at one stage I had this sense that that God was trying to say to me, you know, um, I'm going to take that black ugly wound and I'm going to turn it into a treasure chest, but I have to clean it out first. Yeah. And I said to God, I don't have conversations like this with God very often. Um, and it's not kind of like I'm hearing a voice or something. I mean, some people do. But I said to God, you know, that's the kind of thing a preacher would say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I couldn't deny it. Um, and and um, it is actually what's been happening is it has turned into a pre- treasure chest where I can give gifts to people mm-hmm. so although each time it often feels like i do feel a bit exhausted afterwards if i talk to someone about it mm-hmm. so yeah um sure but, yeah so in your writing are you writing about themes of um these things that have happened in your childhood or are they current themes um, from your, from your day-to-day learning? Uh, Yeah, some of them are from day-to-day. Often in my writing, uh, it's layered. So I might be writing about something that happened today and then it will remind me of something that happened last week. And then it might remind me of something I read in a book 10 years ago. So okay. I often write it in a layered form, mm-hmm. and um, and so I think a lot of people don't realize this. For example, with my thriller, which is fictional, 
Uh, it's actually a trilogy that I'm working on. Um, there are experiences in there that relate to things that have happened to me, but it is definitely not concealed biography because mm-hmm. uh, these characters are, they have become real people. But yeah, they do have to deal with trauma. But unlike most thrillers, it's not really mostly about the action. It's about people's responses to what happens to them. Mm-hmm. So in the first thriller, there's three main characters, but the main character, Mia, she runs a w- women's refuge and mm-hmm. they're all gamblers and she mm. gambles with politicians. And Paddy, the old Catholic abbot, he gambles with God and Red, who's Mia's husband, he doesn't have a faith and he gambles with weapons. And, mm. um, and so it's a family I wanted to just watch a family walk through hell and watch what happened with their three different worldviews. Mm-hmm. And I found that, yeah, I found it quite um, inspiring to me. Those characters became like really good friends. So I ended up having to write a, a trilogy. Well, I'm working on a trilogy anyway. <laughs> Which do you prefer? Do you prefer um, poetry or do you prefer the, the fiction writing? Um, or is well, that like trying to choose which is your favorite child? Yeah, it is a bit like that. I think I I am I have a deep conceit about poetry, um, in that um, yeah, I've tended to think that that poetry is the closest thing to reality you can get, but only about five um, percent of people get it. Mm-hmm. So you may as well write in prose because um, you don't want everybody walking out of the room. So, um, yeah, I made myself learn to write prose. People do say that the prose I write is often very poetic. So mm-hmm. I think that that definitely helps with that, yeah. And you wrote um, Beautiful Quest in 2015, which is Reflective Stories, and then you published the Mia's, Mia's Magic Wand, the thriller in 2017, which is now available and That's Janie's right. Janie's secret, the prequel to Mia's Magic Wand, is coming out in 2023. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. And so, um, how do people get a hold of you, or get a hold of your books, or find out more about you, Peter? Sure. Well, um, yeah, they can check out my uh, blog. My blog site. My my Facebook page is actually my blog site. I've just turned it into a blog. Okay. But they can also go to my website, which is uh, petervolkovsky.com. Sorry, not I got that wrong, peter.volkovsky.com. Okay. And you also, and your Facebook page is um, author Peter Volkovsky, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, great. Well, we will put this information up so people can read more about your story. I just thank you for your um, honesty and vulnerability at sharing um, sharing your story, and I'm sure that it will be um, inspiring and encouraging to those who hear it. So, thank you so much. Yeah, I just meant to correct that website. It is petervolkovsky.com.au. Okay. Okay, great. Well, we'll put that in our show notes and make sure that everybody has that so they can get a hold of your work. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. You have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Bye.
If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day. <laughs>